Well, let's do that. Uh, turn over to the book of Isaiah. And uh, if you're just joining us, uh, we're in a verse-by-verse study for the book of Isaiah. We're in chapter 54 today. It's been a while since you've been here. Welcome back to Sunday School. We're in Isaiah 54. And... Um, all right, there we go. Okay, yeah, so Isaiah 54, as you might have done, the arithmetic comes after Isaiah 53, which is a, a climax. It's one, of the, it's one of the high peaks in the mountains, the mountain range of the book of Isaiah. And uh, so coming off of that, uh, we're going to see kind of where we go here. So let me start the PowerPoint. And then let me see if I can share it with those of you at home. Okay, so there we go. You guys can still see it. You guys see it at home? Is that good? Okay. And, of course, I have to make sure it works like this, too. Which it doesn't. Okay, hang on. I am not sure why. There we go. Turn that off. Okay, there you are. Stand by. How many of you feel like you got a master's degree in Zoom this year? <laughs> Grace Bible Institute will be awarding certificates. Okay, there we go. Okay, seeing God through judgment and redemption, that's our study of the book of Isaiah. And uh, we come today to chapter 54. Now, just by way of review, uh, the title of the message today is The Joy of Israel's Future. The whole second half of the book of Isaiah uh, you need to remember that the first 39 chapters happen during the course of Isaiah's life. Historically, he's writing as events unfold. We see his ministry during the reign of four different kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. And uh, during Isaiah's ministry, what, what major historic event happens in the middle of Isaiah's life that, that, that really is the watershed moment of his life? Do you remember what, what happens and this is where you participate. It's a big room, but I've got you guys at home, and I've got you guys here, so jump in. Don't be shy. What happens in the middle of his ministry that, that is world-shaping? Don't let me down, guys. Come on. What's that? That's right. Israel, the northern kingdom, is exiled. And you remember, um, you got this little, teeny, tiny little country called Israel. And surrounding it is what? What, 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 what uh, nation is surrounding Israel at this time? The nation of Assyria. They are the superpower of the day. And so there's this little dot of real estate, and the Assyrians are going, we want that. We want that, right? And so that, that's what's going on. And as we see, as the northern kingdom, Israel, at this time, of course, in Israel's history, the nation is divided. There's been a civil war. So you have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And uh, God is appealing through the prophets to his people to repent, to trust him, to not side with the enemy, to not go after false gods. And after a season of God's patience and his appeal, God says, okay, enough is enough. And he takes that northern kingdom of Israel and he allows the Assyrians to come in and destroy that land and carry many of them off uh, into other parts of the, of the Assyrian Empire. So that happens mid-course. And, and you'll remember at the very end of Isaiah's ministry, uh, they, make, they make another effort, right, 
um, to take over Judah and God uh, miraculously intervenes and, and stops them. Um, so those two events are shaping what's going on. And so the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are about Isaiah's appeal to the southern kingdom, right, to Judah, to repent, to not be like the northern kingdom and, and follow after other gods. And uh, so we see that. And, and the, just when we, remember how the book, remember how the chapter 39 ends? You've got this, this king, his name is Hezekiah. And he's not like the other kings. He's righteous and he starts tearing down some of the altars and reestablishing some of the laws. And we think, man, this is, this is the king, right? This is the guy. This is what we've been needing all along. And, uh, and remember then he gets sick and God rem- miraculously heals him and we go, great, this is it. And then what happens? He gets a big head. He gets a big head. And, and people hear about uh, God's miraculous intervention and stopping the invasion and his recovery. And so uh, kings and, and leaders want to come and, and hear from Hezekiah. And you remember what he does? He wants to go show him all the gold and all the treasuries and all this stuff. And, and Isaiah's last words to him are, you, you realize, uh, you, you realize, uh, hang on. There we go. All right. Uh, and, and, and Isaiah says, you realize that uh, your sons are going to be taken into captivity. And Isaiah's like, well, or uh, uh, Hezekiah's like, well, at least everything will be good in my life. And we go, what is wrong with you? And then the end, right? That, that chapter 39 ends and we go, well, Hezekiah can't be the hope then for Judah. What's our hope? And we turn the page to chapter 40, verse 1, and we read those wonderful words, comfort comfort right that comfort that that the salvation that the the redemption that that the that the the need for rescue is not going to be found in a human king right in one of these successive judean kings but it will be found through god's particular agent that isaiah reveals to us in those first few chapters of chapter 40 41 42 god's agent called the what what's his name the servant, okay? And that's where we get this series of what are called the servant songs. There's little sections, right? Look back at chapter 40, uh, chapter 42, verse 1, as Isaiah begins to unfold, well, where is this hope going to be found? Now, you remember, in chapters 40 to 66, the second half of the book, Isaiah is writing from the perspective of people after the Babylonian captivity. So they've launched, Isaiah has launched 150 years into the future and he's looking backward and talking about what happened during the exile, what happens during the, uh, the restoration. But, but in, in these verses, he reminds us where is the hope and salvation and deliverance going to come from. And he identifies here uh, his servant, right? And so we see, for example, in Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I will uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. And he, listen to this, he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. And we say, yes, this is, this is what we've needed. This is the deliverer and his name is the servant. Then we see the second servant song. If we just turn the page over to Isaiah 49. 
And we hear about him again in chapter 49, verse 1. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention to you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He has concealed me, and he has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward uh, with my God. And then he goes on to sort of not just introduce the servant, but here he talks about the kingdom specifically, the, the kingdom and the rule of this servant. Now he's identified here as the servant Israel. And, and we may think, as it said earlier in the book, that this is, that the nation is the servant. But as we, as we read, as we keep reading in the book of Isaiah, the identification of the servant goes from you know, Israel, and we're thinking, you know, by context, that must be the nation, the people, but then it narrows down to what? An individual, right? Someone who comes from Israel. And, uh, and that, that servant becomes God's agent then of salvation. Uh, flip the page over to chapter 50. We, we see the third of what's called the servant songs. We get introduced again in chapter 50, verse 4. The Lord has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with the word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord has opened my ear. Listen to this. And I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting for the Lord God Helps me, And we hear allusions to the beatings of Jesus, to the scourgings, to the trials. And in fact, some of the gospel writers will use these very verses to reference Jesus' work as the coming fulfillment of these servant prophecies. And then, of course, the most famous of the servant songs we looked at uh, in our time in Isaiah last time, uh, chapter 52, verse 13, down through uh, the end of chapter 53, this is, of course, the suffering servant as we know it. Um, one of the most graphic, specific, picturesque revelations of the Messiah that we have in the whole Old Testament. It is incredible how detailed and how specific and, and how particular this section is in describing what will be the death and, and redemptive work of Jesus himself. Okay, so those are the servant songs, just to remind you where we've been in weeks past. So that culminates again in chapter 53, the, the suffering servant that reminds us uh, that um, the servant will bear their iniquities, right? We, we saw this last time, verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days and uh, verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, the same anguish we just talked about in verse chapter 50, right? As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. How? As he will bear their iniquities. And so we have the seeds of what we come to know as substitutionary atonement, right? That, that the Messiah comes and takes the place of sinners bearing their sin. And then sinners receive his righteousness in exchange 
what we call substitution. So, so where do we go from here, right? That, that brings us up to our chapter in chapter 54. Well, in chapter 54 and in chapter 55, those describe the response to what we just heard. How should the people respond to the suffering servant who comes to live and die, to be their substitute, to, to make uh, an offering for their sin and thus restore them to God? How should we respond to that? Well, Isaiah is going to say it's very simple. You sing and you eat. Because that's what you do when you're happy, right? Uh, not a lot of happiness with the Cowboys this year. But when the Cowboys are winning, what do we do? We eat and we sing. Right? Where's my A&M fans? Where's A&M? A&M fans. All right, we got one right here. Okay, when A&M is winning, right? What do we do? We sing and we eat. Right? That's what, that's what you do when you get excited. And that's exactly what Isaiah is going to say is in light of the servant, in light of his work, what do we do? We're going to have a party. We're going to sing and we're going to shout and we're going to eat. And so in chapter 54, we're going to see the first part of that, the singing, the shouting, the joy, as we, as we see this played out. And so we'll call this the joy of Israel's future. Look with me at uh, the joy and future of Israel. Look at chapter 54, verse 1. Shout for joy, O barren one. There it is, right out of the gate. This is the response to what we've just heard. Shout for joy, O barren one. You who have borne no child, break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman says the Lord. Okay, now what's going on here? We, we need to understand the metaphor here, okay? The references to the barren one, to the desolate one. This is Israel. Israel has been in captivity. They've been in Babylon. They've been enslaved. Their homeland has been destroyed. Remember remember what happens? The Babylonians come in, and in a series of three campaigns, they destroy Jerusalem. They tear down the wall. They destroy the temple. They carry the goods off to Babylon. And we go... This is how it ends? This is, this is the great God and how, and we understand, no, that that was designed by God to be temporary, right? And, and so the, the barren one, the desolate one is Israel. And now God has acted. Now He has redeemed His nation. He's restoring them. He's bringing them back. And so He says, rejoice. Why? Look at this. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. There's a future for Israel, is what he's saying. There's a hope here. And you remember, these verses echo way, way back to a covenant that God made with a man named Abram. Remember that? Way back in Genesis 12, where God promised Abram that he would have a great nation, that he would be a great people, and there would be generations and generations and generations of people that would come from Abram and from his line. And what we see here is that God is going to do exactly what he said he would do. Even this temporary exile, this temporary discipline, where his people go into Babylon, God says, see, I'm going to restore you, and you're going to continue to be numerous, and you're going to continue to be a great nation and so in verse 2 he says in light of that you need to get ready right they're going to be numerous and they will need to enlarge their dwellings verse 2 enlarge the place of your tent stretch out the curtains of your dwellings spare not lengthen your cords strengthen your pegs what's he saying you're going to need a bigger house because the nation's going to grow people are going to be numerous Right? 
Lengthen your corns, strengthen your pegs. You will spread out abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess the nations. Now, this is interesting. What does it mean that they will possess the nations? That they will be what? And we've seen this in Isaiah before, that Jerusalem will become the, the center point of the world, right? As, as nations come to see what has this God done and, and what is God's people like and they will gather. We, we've seen these visions before in the book of Isaiah and they will possess the nations in the sense that they will, they will be over. They, they will, uh, th- there will be rule from Jerusalem even over the rest of the world. And then we start to go, now wait a minute. We know that uh, a guy named Cyrus is going to come in, the Persian leader. Remember, the Persians come in and take over the, the Babylonians, right? And that this man named Cyrus is going to give the decree to send Israel back home and allow them to rebuild. And you'll remember the story of Nehemiah and how Nehemiah has this conviction that he's going to go back and rebuild the temple. And so he appeals uh, to the king. The king says, go with my blessing. Nehemiah goes back and works on the wall. A guy named Zerubbabel goes back and he starts work on the temple, right? Ezra the priest begins to lead the people and teach the people, right? And there's this wonderful restoration that happened as Israel comes out of captivity. They go back to Jerusalem. They start rebuilding the walls and rebuilding the temple and reestablishing the sacrifices. And we go all this, but we go, I don't remember the part where they possess the nations. Do you? In fact, something's going to happen shortly after that. The, the Greco empire, the, the, the Greek empire will arise and they will take over for the Persians. And after them, the Romans. And so that by the time we get to the first century, we go, we're not seeing Israel possessing the nations. Well, what does that tell us about this verse? Does this happen shortly after Isaiah's lifetime? Does this happen uh, during any of the successive generations leading up to the time of the Messiah? No, it doesn't. And we're going to talk about that. Remember, um, Isaiah is like a sports photographer. Do you remember this? You ever seen a sports photographer? What do sports photographers do? You ever seen one? And now it's weird because, you know, they don't let all of them on the field like they used to. But you see a sports photographer and they're sitting, you know, behind... Uh, the end zones. You, you've seen this, right? And he's got one camera over here with a lens about the size of a school bus. That's his long lens, right? And then he's got another camera off the other shoulder, right? And, and then depending on where the action is happening, he may pull out the long lens and get somebody way, way down the other side of the field. Or if it's right in the end zone, he'll pick up his other camera with a shorter lens, right? And, and so he, he picks the, the camera that he needs depending on whether he's looking at something far away or whether he's looking at something close up. And that's what Isaiah does in the book of Isaiah. You remember this. Sometimes he's got that short lens and he's thinking about things that are going to happen in his lifetime or shortly after his lifetime. And then, without telling us, he switches cameras. He switches lenses. He pulls out his long lens. And now he's talking about stuff that's going to happen way, way in the future. And your job, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to figure out, Mr. Isaiah, which camera are you using? Which lens are you using? And so we have to look at the context. And right here, we read this and we go, this doesn't make sense with what we know happens historically in the subsequent generations of Israel's history, right? So so it looks like this is something that's going to happen yet in the future. 
Now, remember that, because that's not the only time we're going to see that here. Okay? Look at this. They will resettle the ruined cities of Israel. Verse uh, 3. Look back there. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess the nations and will resettle the desolate cities. Now, we see some of that, right? They come back to Jerusalem. They start rebuilding Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. But again, we've got this picture that says, well, did all of that happen? And, And so maybe there's some of this that's yet future. Okay, so so keep that in mind. We'll come back to that in a minute. Look at the next verse. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. Do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. But you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. Now listen to these verses. Verse 7. For a brief moment I forsook you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. These are very personal verses. And this is language that we haven't heard yet in Isaiah. Not, not like this. So let's, let's look at this next section here. We'll call it Israel's husband. Israel's husband. What's going on here? Notice the description. As Israel, thinking about the exile, which is, which is God's discipline, right? He, he sent them into Babylon as a disciplinary measure because they were rebellious. They were not uh, faithful to God. They were worshiping other gods. They were corrupt. They were unjust. And now on the other side of that exile, how are these folks feeling? They're feeling humiliated. They are ashamed. <laughs> That's Isaiah calling. Um, uh, right? They're fearful. What's our future going to be like? They're ashamed. They're humiliated. They're disgraced. They feel the reproach of their sin. And God says, what? Fear not. You will not be put to shame. Do not feel humiliated. You will not be disgraced. You will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. Why? God says, because I'm your husband. And I'll be faithful to you. I will remember you. I will call you out. I will call you back. I will bring you back. And we think here... Uh, of another prophet, the prophet Hosea, whose whole life and ministry was a metaphor of God's faithfulness to his people in the midst of their sin and rebellion and spiritual adultery is is the, the picture there. God says, I'll be faithful to you. I'll call you back. And, and what, what can you imagine? You're an Israelite. You've blown it. You're in captivity, you're in exile, your homeland's destroyed, your families, probably you've lost family members, and you're going, what hope do we have? 
and to hear the words of the prophet saying, you don't have to be humiliated. You don't have to be ashamed. Yes, those things happened, but I am still your husband. I am still committed to you. I'm calling you back. There's forgiveness, there's mercy, there's grace, there's future, there's peace. We understand that God's relationship with his people is like a marriage, isn't it? It's a permanent covenant. It's, it's not dissolvable, dissolvable. And so he calls them back. And God says specifically here, I'm your husband. I'm faithful to you. Notice the description here. You ever read in your Bible and you get to places where God just starts unpacking who he is? Right? Those moments, you know, it's like it's God, the Lord, God, the Lord, the Lord, God, right? And then you hit a section like this where God pulls out his thesaurus almost. He says, let me, let me unpack who I really am. Look at the description here. Look what he does here. For your husband is your, what? Say it. Your maker. What, what's that? Your creator. Right? I'm your creator. I made you. I formed you. I, I'm the God who said, <laughs> let there be light. And spoke things into existence. The, the Lord, your husband is your maker. Look at this. Whose name is, what? The Lord of hosts. Remember, that's God in BDUs, right? That, that's God's military title. He comes as the commander-in-chief of all the army, armies of the host of heaven. This is God coming in his might and in his power and in his strength. He says, I'm your, I'm your husband, right? There's this, this personal covenant, faithful commitment, right? But I'm also your creator, your maker. I'm also the commander-in-chief. I'm the military ruler. Look at the next part. And your redeemer. The one who comes to save you, to to buy you back out of the slavery, of the exile that you've been in. And of course, we're thinking about this, we're reading about this, and of course, God isn't just thinking here of pulling them out of Babylon. He's thinking redemption and not just a physical redemption, a physical redeeming, but what? There's a spiritual redemption. You say, I don't, I don't buy into that. You're reading that? No, no. We Watch. As this unfolds, we get into chapter 55, it becomes very clear. He's not just talking about a physical deliverance from a foreign nation. He's talking about a heart redemption that's needed because of sin. Okay? You see that? Look at this. Redeemer, husband, maker, Lord of hosts, redeemer. Look at the next part. The Holy One of Israel. Oh, don't you love that? The Holy One, the unique one, the set-apart one of Israel, meaning he belongs to Israel. Israel is is his people, his special covenant people, who he's called out. Look at this. Who is called the God of all the earth. Hasn't God just proved that? He just told the the whole nation, um, this guy named Cyrus... Who's Cyrus? Oh, we don't know. He's a Persian leader. He's not going to come for generations and generations, right? But he's going to come and be my servant, and I'm going to use him to redeem you. Why? Because he's the God of all the earth. He's ruler over all. That's why why this Tuesday ought not to be an occasion for anxiety and worry. And fear. Why? 
He's the God of all the earth. He's the God of ballot boxes. He's a God of elections. He's a God of presidencies. He's a God of the political process. Nothing is outside of his sovereign care and plan. We were talking about this last night. Um, does God ever do things that don't make sense? Do you ever go, why would you do that, God? That just doesn't make any sense. you ever feel like that? Nod your head. You've all felt like that. Okay. Have you ever said, God, not only do I don't understand that, I think you're wrong. You should never do that, God. Right? And you know this. This isn't just a problem we have. The prophets had a problem. Remember Jonah? No! Don't show mercy to the Ninevites. They're horrible. They're our enemy. God says, what if I want to do that? Oh. Well, if that's the case, I'm jumping in a boat and going the opposite direction. I'm not participating in that. Or what of our friend Job? Right? Losing ten children, losing his slaves, his livelihood, his land, his animals, afflicted with a skin disease that rendered him unrecognizable even to his closest family members and friends. And he strove in faith for a while. And then in his depression and his anger and his pain and his suffering, he turned his eyes to heaven and said, Lord, you have this wrong. I'm suffering unjustly. You shouldn't do this. What do we need in moments like that? Where not only we don't understand, we, we might think God is wrong. And you know what? Something might happen Tuesday. You think God got it wrong. Could happen. What do we need? What we need is the same thing the prophets need, the same thing Isaiah is saying to the people. You know, you know what faith is? Faith is believing that God is who he says he is and that his ways are right and good and truthful, even if you don't understand and even if we don't disagree, even if we completely disagree. That's faith. Faith is saying, I would rather believe God than believe that I'm right. I would rather believe the word of God even when I don't understand. And I just can't help but think that going into this week, we need a good dose of what Isaiah is telling us here, don't we? He's the creator. He's the redeemer. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the military leader, right? He's, he's the God. He's the Holy One of Israel. He is, come back to the text here with me, He is the God of all the earth. Now let me ask you a question. Can you trust Him? If that's really who He is, can you trust Him? Now, I know what your social media is going to say. Can you trust Him? Not just with elections, with, with the pains of life, with the difficulties of life, with the medical issues, with the relational issues, with the financial issues. Remember, what is this book about? Isaiah is about, behold your God. 
Because we suffer from small God disorder, don't we? This is our God. And he's remind, that, that, that's, that's the shouting for joy, right? Isaiah is saying to the people, you can shout for joy. Why? Because he's going to redeem you and save you. There's a future. But this is who he is. The joy of the believer is driven by the character of who God is. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel who is called the God of all the earth. Look at verse 6. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected. What's the picture there? The picture is of a husband who has abandoned his wife. A new husband, a new, a new bride. And early on in their marriage, something happens and he says, I'm done. I'm gone. And he leaves. Imagine the, the sorrow of that wife, that bride. This man that she promised they were happier than they could ever have been on their wedding day. Couldn't live to spend the rest of their lives together. And now she's alone. She's forgotten. She's been abandoned. And God says, you know what, Israel? That's probably what you felt like, right? And here comes the husband back to his wife to redeem her. To, to bring her back, to restore her to full fellowship in that union, in that relationship. God says, I'm calling you out, right? I'm, I'm calling you back like a forsaken wife, like one who'd been rejected. Now, we may say, um, so if that's true, God's the husband who abandoned his wife. Did we get that just right? Look at verse 7. For a brief moment, I forsook you. That's a hard verse, isn't it? What's he saying? What's Isaiah saying about God? That was your cue. You with me? What's he saying? As, as a severe measure of God's loving and wise discipline, he sent his people into captivity. Right? And you can imagine, as the temple was being destroyed, as the, as the walls were coming down, as people are hauled out, as families are being ripped apart, children from parents and people dying, people are going, where is God? Why is he not saving us? Why is he not intervening? Where, where is he? And God said, for a brief moment, I let that happen. Why? Because he hated his bride? No, because he loves his bride. It's a different metaphor, but if you have children, you know this. You ever had to discipline your children? And some of you kids have heard 
mom, dad, mom and dad say, this is going to hurt me more than it's hurt you. And you're like, yeah, right. That's a line. Well, someday you'll be parents and you'll, you'll understand it. Because that discipline that a parent does out of love, though painful to the child, does what Proverbs says, right? It trains them in righteousness. It drives out foolishness. It, it has a good redemptive goal, right? And that's what God is saying here. For a brief moment, I allowed my bride to be taken into captivity and, and she was forsaken. In God says, look at the next verse, or say, in an outburst of anger, in God's righteous, holy, and good anger exercised in the discipline against his people, I let them go. But, watch this. Verse 7. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In, a, in an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Do you see that? Look up for a second. Temporary discipline, eternal loving kindness. You got it? God, does God discipline his children? Yeah, he does. We could go to the New Testament and we could see examples where God says, for example, in the book of Hebrews, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Looking back at some of those Proverbs texts, actually. And that discipline, according to the writer of Hebrews, says, is an indication that you're a son, that you belong in the family of God, because what father is there that loves his son that doesn't discipline him? That discipline, that training is, is, is a part of it. But, but remember what Hebrews says. All discipline in the moment seems not to be joyful, but what? But sorrowful. But to those who have been trained by it, what does it do? It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And that's what's happening historically, nationally, with God's people back in this time. God's saying, I allowed you to be disciplined uh, in my righteous anger. I sent you into captivity. But now I'm, I've done that for your long-term well-being. The compassion, the loving kindness is for everlasting. <laughs> okay, thought we had a question there. All right, okay, so th- this is so important, okay? Uh, everlasting loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Now, now... Hang on to that and watch where he goes. Because you need to make this connection. Verse 9. For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. Now, what's that a reference to? The guy that built the boat. Yeah, I know. But, but what, what, what is this referencing here? God destroyed the earth. And he said he wouldn't do it again. That's Genesis 9, if you want a reference there, right? God, Noah gets off the boat. He's got his family, all the animals. They're all stretching because, you know, it's been over a year on a boat. And and God says, today I make a covenant with you and with all of humanity, right? So this isn't, we call it the Noahic covenant, but it's not a covenant to Noah. it's It's a covenant that God told Noah about, but it's really a covenant between God and all of humanity. And God promises that he will never again, what? 
destroy the whole earth with flood. Right? That, that covenant he makes with humanity. And, and Isaiah says, remember that? Just as God promised with all of humanity that he would never destroy the world by flood again, look back at the text there, verse 9, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake. Meaning, your worst day, right? Everything could go wrong. But, verse 10, my loving kindness will not be removed from you. And my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Do you understand what God just said? You missed it. You missed it. Do you know how many people struggle with the thought that God is angry with them? Maybe you've struggled with that. And we've talked about humiliation, shame, guilt. We've talked about humiliation, right? Being disgraced, being reproached. And what God is saying is, I just want to remind you that if you belong to my family, what I'm saying is that anger will not plague you ever again. You get that? God's covenant with his people means his righteous anger is somehow what? It's satisfied. It's it's assuaged. It's done. And we go, how did that happen? Well, remember, Isaiah 54 comes after Isaiah 53. The work of the Messiah, the work of the servant, ensures that God's righteous anger is put away forever. You know how many believers, God's angry with me. How do I know God's happy with me? I, what if God's, what if I, what if I mess up and God, God, God's gonna be angry with me? And, and, you know, we need to talk about how this relates to the New Testament believer, and we will. But would you just see that the work of the Messiah is sufficient to put away our humiliation, our shame, our disgrace, whatever we've done that makes us feel like that? That God in this work makes a way for all of that to be put behind us. His anger toward us, his righteous anger toward us, put away forever because of the work of the servant. And a believer never has to wonder, do I die and bear God's anger? Because God here promises... It won't happen. Isn't that a great encouragement? Isn't that a great blessing to remember? Okay? So look where this goes. Like the covenant with humanity given to Noah, God's covenant with Israel will not be shaken, meaning it's not going to be displaced. And notice he references here the covenant of peace. Right? My covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Now, what is the covenant of peace? What do you think? It's hard to know, isn't it? 
And I think contextually we don't have a whole lot of clues other than God has just said, my loving kindness will not be removed, right? I have sworn I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. So, so this, this promised peace has something to do with a covenant. Now, we're going to see in chapter 55 which covenant he's being specific about, okay? So we'll just kind of leave that hanging there going, what's the covenant of peace? I don't know, but it's good because it brings peace, okay? The Lord has compassion. Look at the last section, Israel's future. Notice this, verse 11. Oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set you, set your stones in antimony and your foundations I will lay in sapphires. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of crystal and your entire walls of precious stones. And if you turn with me to the book of Nehemiah, you will read about all that. Actually, you won't. You turn to Nehemiah and you read about the rebuilding of the walls. Is he talking about sapphires and crystal and precious stones? Is that what we read in in Nehemiah? What do we read? It looks like a wall. It's made out of brick and mortar and rocks, right? That's what you read. So what must Isaiah be talking about here then? If he's talking about walls and architecture built with these precious stones... Don't look at your notes. Don't cheat and look at Revelation 21, even though it's in your notes. (laughs) You already did. What's he talking about? What did Isaiah? Isaiah just pulled out his long lens again. He's looking way, right? He's looking at the New Jerusalem. He's not looking at what Zerubbabel does and what Nehemiah does and what Ezra does. He's looking at the future, the future New Jerusalem that Isaiah has touched on before. Okay, so we've got this beautiful new architecture. You can read about it in Revelation 21, and and we won't take the time to do that. But if you read Revelation 21, you read some of the same descriptions of the New Jerusalem that happens there and and the, the, the beautiful stones that are used for that. What else characterizes this time? Look at this. Verse 13. All your sons will be taught of the Lord, and the well-being of your sons will be great. Righteous sons. Sons that are taught of the Lord. And, and we scratch our heads and we go, well, how does that happen? And I have reference there, Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31, which are two references to which covenant in the Old Testament? The new covenant. Just You can turn there or you're welcome to just listen. Listen to Jeremiah. Listen to this. Jeremiah 31, verse 34 as Jeremiah is unfolding this new covenant that God's going to make with his people, Jeremiah 31, verse 34. Listen to this. They will not teach again. Let me, let me back up a little bit. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. Listen. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Here's verse 34. And they will not teach again. Each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So what Isaiah is talking about here in chapter 54 verse 13, these righteous sons Those righteous sons that don't need to be taught because they've been taught of the Lord, those are the product of this new covenant that God's going to make with his people. 
And Ezekiel says something very similar. So again, that points us to a time yet future, right? When that new covenant is given with the people. Not only righteous sons, but protection from enemies. Look at 14. In righteousness you will be established. You will be far from oppression, for you will not fear. And from terror, for it will not come near you. If anyone fiercely assails you, it will not be from me. Whoever assails you will be will fall because of you. Um, so he's just talking about here, there will be protection, right? That, that, that all these things, all these enemies that may come at Israel will be protected from. And a reminder in 16 that God is sovereign over all. Look at this. Behold, I myself have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and brings out a weapon for its work. I have created the destroyer to ruin. So God's saying, the reason these enemies will no longer be a threat to you is I'm sovereign over them, right? I'm sovereign over the smith that makes the implements. I'm sovereign over the enemy himself, right? No one's going to thwart my plan. No one's going to threaten you, Israel, because I'm over all. And finally, Israel's prosperity is ensured. Look at verse 17. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper. You guys know the song? Remember the old uh, 80s praise song, no, no weapon formed against you will prosper? That's where it comes from, right here. And every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. For th- Listen to this. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me declares the Lord. God says, I have spoken. There is security. There is peace. There is a future. There is a heritage. There is vindication. We say, man, that sounds, that, that, that sounds like it's worthy of a party, right? And so we're left scratching our heads saying, well, when does all this happen? Okay. And this is where, this is going to unfold into chapter 55. So let me just give you this graphic. Flip your notes over to the back to the graphic. When does this happen? Some of these things happen when Israel regathers in Jerusalem under Nehemiah, under Zerubbabel, other, under Ezra. And we call that the, the return period of Israel's history. And those happen in the subsequent books of uh, the prophets. And we'll see that. Some of those things happen, right? They rebuild. There's, there's protection. There's regathering. But we also recognize there's a future kingdom, right? What the, the saved, restored future kingdom of Israel. Uh, we've seen here as Isaiah gets out his long lens and he's looking at things that, that will not happen historically until sometime in the future. When Israel is regathered, when they're saved, when they're restored. Pastor Terry has just talked about this in, in Romans chapter 11. Isaiah is referencing some of those same events that Paul references in Romans 11. And finally, as we saw this new heavens and new earth, the new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven that we read in Revelation 21, some of these things like the, uh, the walls and foundations that are made with these precious stones, uh, all those things happen in the eternal state. So, so if you figure this, you kind of have... Three references here with these things. So here's the, here's the graphic, right? Some of these things happen in the return from exile that happens around 538 BC, somewhere in there. Some of these things happen in that, that thousand year future kingdom yet to come, the restoration of Israel, the regathering of Israel that Isaiah has referenced. And some of those happen yet in the new heavens and the new earth. And again, Isaiah doesn't tell us, you know, which season is that going to happen. So we as the readers have to kind of deduce from the context uh, what's happening here? 
Okay, what have we learned? We have learned that God is the maker. He's the Holy One of Israel. He's the Redeemer. He's the Lord of hosts. He, he is the one that has acted to ensure the blessing and security and salvation of his people. Uh, like Israel, we look back in humiliation and shame and guilt when we reject God, when we abandon him. And God says, yet my promises remain. And there, there is a future, there is a hope. And those things are, are, are secured because of the previous chapter, the work of the servant. And as this unfolds even more, we'll see it next time in chapter 55, this call to come and be redeemed and be saved and to know the eternal loving kindness. That There's a way, guys. Just, there is a way to be restored to God and that he will never bring a charge against you. He will never be angry with you. He will never shame you or disgrace you. And that happens through the person and work of the servant, who we know is ultimately the Lord Jesus and the unfolding of his new covenant. So what what great promises we have as we go into this week thinking about our sovereign God and as we think about the security that we can have as we come to trust in the Messiah. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for uh, the reminders of these verses today. What, What pictures we have of who you are. Lord, might we take these reminders into our week to trust you, to remember that you know best, that you're sovereign over all, that your loving kindness and your goodness and your care are promised to your people. And we, we thank you that we can rest in that and we can have a security in that, that whatever we've done, whatever we've done that, that, that is a sin against your law or something we've done that we've regretted or we feel guilty or shamed about, that, that what we've seen today is there is a way for that to be turned away forever, to be a part of your family and to enjoy your loving kindness and your mercy forever, that, that you will not be angry with your people. That that anger is resolved in the person and work of the servant. Lord, thank you for those things. Might we draw near to that today? Might we trust that? And might we go into this week especially confident that we can trust you and that you know what's best and that you're working in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.